Please pray with me again. God, as we heard a moment ago, you are the good shepherd. It is your joy and your way to lead your sheep to the food and the water that is needful for us. And so, Father, as we approach your scriptures, we ask that you would feed us and nourish us, Lord, that you would give us everything we need, the wisdom we need, the fear of the Lord that we need to understand, and Father, understanding that we would do your will, that we would be conformed more closely to the image of your Son. It is in his name that we pray, amen. As we live in the world, there are some tensions that we all experience. We all get to see, and at least to some extent, enjoy the good gifts of life and family and fruitful labor that are given to all men. There is an inherent goodness and enjoyability to these gifts from God, and generally we all get to enjoy them at least to an extent. Furthermore, we see, perhaps especially in our age, the phenomenon of incredible human achievement. Some of us experience enjoyment in this. For others, the experience is one of resentment or envy or even avoidance. But we all have the experience of seeing the worldly advancements and successes and luxuries afforded by human ingenuity. The enjoyment and priority of this world and its culture and what you can get from it, what I referred to in my last sermon as your best life now, this is such an ancient and ubiquitous tradition that we found it clearly modeled with Cain's family in the closing verses of Genesis 4. So we all see and experience in one way or another not only the basic good gifts, but also the riches and success and luxuries that are a part of our world. At the same time, however, we often see the pain and devastation inherent to the world. We see and our hearts react to such human evils as murder, wars, neglect, abuse, and exploitation. We also see and experience the painful corruption of the natural order, Things like floods, hurricanes, wildfires, famine, cancer, heart disease, viruses, and as we're all experiencing now, a viral pandemic. We even see situations where our advancements themselves become occasions for untimely death. Things like car accidents, plane crashes, or the failure of a nuclear reactor like the one in Chernobyl. Perhaps an element of this experience was reinforced for some of you this past week as it was for me with the photo of the United States Marine leaning over razor wire in Afghanistan as he reached down to receive a baby that was being handed up to him. That baby's parents were evidently hoping for a better life for their child if it could escape Afghanistan. And even as we saw all the ingenuity and wealth and strength represented in that Marine and his training and his gear, at the same time we see the helplessness of the people of Afghanistan and even of the United States, for that matter, the most powerful country in the world, our helplessness to secure the most basic circumstances necessary for a peaceful and prosperous life for a child born into this world in the year 2021. So we, all of us, we live in this world and we see and somehow experience these realities of the world, both good and bad. At the same time, if we're faithful, we know that our ultimate hope is not of this world. And so, we might ask, should we try to remove ourselves and our thoughts as much as possible from the world? 
Is the best way of life for a Christian to seek an isolated existence where we can be alone with our thoughts about God until he finally removes us out of this mess in order to be with him in eternity? And of course, many of you are rightly answering to yourselves, no, God tells us we must be in the world even if we're not of the world. And perhaps it calls to mind the old aphorism attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes that we don't want to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. But what does all of this mean practically in the life of the believer? How can we make sense of the pain and misery on the one hand and the abundance of riches and the pleasures of this world on the other? How can we have confidence in our blessed future hope and at the same time, how can we know and fulfill the purpose God has for us on earth, seeing that he has not yet taken us to be with him in eternity? Well, our text for today, Genesis chapter 5, describes for us four transcendent realities that will help us to make sense of these difficult tensions. And what we will see as we study this text is that these four transcendent realities lead us to one inescapable and all-encompassing goal. These four realities found in Genesis 5 have led the faithful throughout the ages, and they must lead us also to the promised Messiah and to further conformity to his image. Beloved, we must allow the realities found in this text to drive us as God's people to greater Christ-likeness. Now, please open with me to Genesis chapter 5 if you haven't already, and if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Follow along here as I read this account of the lives of the earliest faithful men in history. The word of God from Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. 
Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years, and he became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. What we find in these 32 verses is Moses' account of Adam's line through Seth. The first thing to notice, as I began to draw your attention to last time, is that this account of Seth's descendants stands in contrast with the account of Cain's family in chapter 4. This contrast began back in, chapter, in verse 25. You might recall that whereas Cain's line, and especially his descendant Lamech, displayed a godless and worldly hope that generated early examples of the world's civilization and culture, this is contrasted in verse 26 with the heavenly hope of Seth's family as they began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, as the narrative progresses into chapter 5, we find a significant section introduction with the words, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That word, generations, in the Hebrew, toledot, that word is used in this same distinctive way ten times in Genesis, each time indicating a major section break. And so it is following this major section break that we find in chapter 5 are four transcendent theological realities. And these four realities can be found in the outline provided in the bulletin. They are, number one, the faithful can still be God's blessing to the world. Two, the faithful know the joys of life and the pains of death. Three, the faithful can be friends with God and escape death. And four, the faithful place all hope in the promised Messiah. Beginning in verse 1, the first of these four realities gives the answer to a question that has gone unaddressed since the fall of man in chapter 3. And the question is this, with the fall of man, is it still possible for man as God's image to mediate God's blessing to the whole world? While the promise was there starting in chapter 3 that there would be blessing through the woman's seed, think for a moment of what we have seen since then in the events of the narrative. We've seen murder, and then we've seen the prosperity and advancements of Cain's line, which culminated in Lamech's godlessness and ruthless violence. And so at this point, it hasn't looked too hopeful that man, as God's image, is becoming a blessing to the world. And so that's the lingering question. Is man still God's image to bless the world? And chapter 5 addresses this question head-on as it opens. Verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. 
you probably recognize that distinctive wording, he made him in the likeness of God, as being lifted right out of chapter 1, something that is surely intentional on the part of the writer. Even after the fall, we find, the image of God in man is still a reality. And here, Moses sets out to establish this fact and to begin to describe how this works in light of the fall. Now, just a heads up in terms of how this is going to play out, I see the text establishing this point up front, that the faithful can still be God's blessing to the world. But really, it takes the rest of the chapter and and really, in a sense, the rest of the Bible for us to understand how this works out. And so, while this is point one in the outline, my treatment of it here will be relatively brief. And I'll actually come back and talk about this point and its implications more fully when we get closer to the end of the sermon. So for now, I mostly just want to point out a few more ways in which these first three verses establish the fact that the image of God in man persists after the fall, in a way that really does accord with God's original design, and also in a way that accounts for the consequences of the fall. First, notice that God's creation of man in the likeness of God, as we see it restated in verse 1, is parallel, verse 2, as it was back in chapter 1, with his creation of them, male and female. This is an indication that after the fall, after Eve's role in the first sin, and after Adam's role also, that both man and woman continue to represent the likeness of God. Secondly, we find God's blessing is restated. Remember, we have seen so far that after the fall, the serpent was cursed, and the ground was cursed, and then in chapter 4, Cain was cursed. But what has been missing up until now is any mention of blessing. And here, wonderfully, the blessing of man and woman created in God's image is restated. Next, moving into verse 3, we learn more about this reality of man as God's image. Adam, it says, became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image. Now, we should think about this in two ways. First, if Adam is the image and likeness of God, and if Adam's son is Adam's image and likeness, then Adam's son is also God's image and likeness. And so, by extension, every single baby conceived in the world is God's image and likeness. The implications of that are too diverse and profound to expound on here, but but you realize that that's huge, that every single baby conceived in the world is God's image and likeness. Furthermore, what we find in verse 3 accounts for the fact of the consequence of sin established by God in chapter 2, that sin would surely lead to death, meaning that Adam and Eve themselves would not always be around as God's image and likeness on the earth. In light of verse 3, we see death does not stop man. In a sense, it doesn't stop Adam himself through his sons from continuing under God's blessing as his image with the purpose of blessing the whole world. Now, there's one more element to this that I want to point out, and we will see this develop more as we continue in the text. As you might remember, Eve is quoted twice in chapter 4 in ways that demonstrate her hope in Yahweh's promise of a particular descendant, a particular seed or son of hers who would defeat the serpent. And here in chapter 5, we see, beginning with Adam and his focus on Seth, and then with the focus on a single son in each generation, that the hope of a particular promised son is a hope that is passed down from one generation to the next in Adam's line. And so, what we find in these verses, these first three verses, simply stated, is that the image of God in man is still a reality, 
and that as they heed God's commitment to be a command to be fruitful and multiply, that the faithful can still be God's blessing to the world. Continuing in verse 4, we find the rest of the account of Adam's life. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Now, as you probably noticed as I read the whole chapter earlier, these verses, starting with verse 4 and continuing through verse 20, they contain a lot of repetition. And this is one of those situations where rather than going verse by verse, we will best grasp Moses' authorial intent as we notice certain emphases he gives in these verses, specifically through repetition. However, before we get to that, I want to say just a few words first about the long lifespans that we read about here. If you've never noticed the extremely long lifetimes recorded in Genesis 5, ranging from over 300 years to nearly 1,000 years of age, there might be something a little astonishing about this for you. And so there are two points I want to make about this. First, we need to believe that people before the flood actually lived the number of years we read of here because it is what the Bible teaches. There is no problem at all with the text, either in terms of its transmission or in terms of the words themselves. That men lived to these long ages, just as you read in your English translation, is exactly what Moses meant to communicate. The text is perfectly clear and reliable on this point. Secondly, this fact is reinforced and it actually gains heightened significance as changes in lifespan are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. What we find is the Genesis narrative continues is that human lifespans rapidly decreased after the flood. And just as an aside, for those of you who are interested in some good reading on this, Answers in Genesis uh, makes a connection between some things we see in the text and then some things that they've observed in the creation that explain how changes in atmosphere would have connected with those decreased lifespans. You can see that on AnswersInGenesis.org if you're interested. But in any case, as I was saying, we find in Genesis that human lifespans rapidly decrease after the flood. And as this takes place, the Bible does not ignore it. In fact, it comments on it directly. For example, in these words spoken by Jacob to Pharaoh after his move to Egypt in Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, Jacob says this, The years of my sojourning are 130. So at this point, Jacob has has lived to the age of 130, and he's going to live to the age of 175. But he says this to Pharaoh, Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. So you see that direct reference to this change in lifespan. After this, the Old Testament continues to record this decline in lifespan. For example, to 120 years for Moses and then 110 for Joshua. And by the time we get to Saul and and David and Solomon, Israel's first three kings, each one of them dies an old man, the text says, at the age of 70. So the Old Testament as a whole gives a thorough account of this altered life expectancy. And then, perhaps more importantly, the book of Isaiah assigns special theological significance to altered life expectancy. In Isaiah's description of the Messianic kingdom, when the Messiah will reign until his righteousness and its effects cover the whole earth. We read this in Isaiah chapter 65 about the kingdom. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. 
So what is the, the theological significance of this? It has to do with Jesus' work as Messiah to reverse the curse and its effects. You see, our first parents began life in the garden with free access to the tree of life and the eternal life it sustained. The fall put man immediately outside of the garden and apart from that provision of eternal life, subject to death. But between the fall and the flood, there was a period of time during which lifespans were longer. And these longer lifespans coincided, as we'll see in Genesis chapter 6, with the spread of wickedness of man all over the earth. And from there, following the flood, God ordained shorter lifespans for man all the way up to the present day. Well, what Isaiah reveals is that God's plan is to throw this sequence pretty much exactly into reverse. The Messiah's kingdom will be a time during which lifespans will increase to be like they were before the flood. And during that period, those significantly increased lifespans will coincide not with the spread of evil, but with the spread of Christ's righteousness through his perfect earthly reign, until, as it says in Habakkuk 2, verse 14, the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the water covers the sea. And then, as described so vividly in Revelation 22, the earth will be returned to an Eden-like existence in the eternal state in which we will once again have unrestricted access to the tree of life and the eternal life which it will sustain. And so, hopefully, that builds your confidence in Scripture as it records these really long lifespans in Genesis. And at the same time, hopefully, it makes you all the more excited about how God is reversing the curse and how he will continue to reverse the curse until we are returned to an even more glorious version of the life that our first parents knew in Eden. Now again, that was kind of a bonus excursus on the lifespans that we find here. Returning to our pursuit of Moses' main point in these verses, as I said before, we're going to want to pay special attention to the things we find repeated over and over in the text. And as we, to, as we do, we'll begin to see this address some of the tensions we experience in our reality on earth. On the one hand, the first thing we see repeated are the words, he begat, or in the ESV, he fathered, or in NASB, he became the father of. This would definitely fit under the category of good things or blessings that the faithful enjoy as part of this world. Each of these men gets to experience the joy of fathering a son, and thereby, as I said, seeing that the seed promise is passed on from generation to generation. In addition, it's repeated eight times, and so it's also emphasized that each of these men not only had a particular son to carry on the promise, but that he had other sons and daughters, each one as he lived many hundreds of years. Each of these men was fruitful and multiplied, and each, we can infer, knew the life and blessing of faith and family as they called on Yahweh and fulfilled his calling that originated at the creation. And so these men, the original faithful men, knew the joys of this life. But on the other hand, joy is not all they knew. In fact, the major emphasis here, because it is strikingly absent from the account of Cain's family, is the emphasis on death. There's something you can't see in the English that really brings this emphasis forward. Now this is going to require a little bit of background, so try to hang with me. The Hebrew text that underlies our English Bible is what is known as the Masoretic Text. It gets its name from the Masoretes, who were a Jewish sect responsible for copying and preserving the text over a thousand years ago. And by the way, we can be really thankful for men like the Masoretes. They did an incredible job of carefully copying the text and preserving it for us so that what we have 
in the Masoretic Mesore text, we understand to be identical, essentially, to what was originally written. It's just a huge gift. But anyway, in keeping with the ancient rabbinic tradition that had been handed down to the Masoretes, they placed markings on the text to help the reader understand things like section breaks and emphases within the text. And so I want to mention two of those markings in this text. First, the Masoretes have a mark that they, they use in every verse that is supposed to break the verse into logical halves. So they put that mark in the verse, and everything that comes before that mark is logically the first half of the verse, and everything that comes after that mark is considered the second half of the verse. Well, in eight places in chapter 5, verses 5, 8, 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, and 31, and don't worry if you didn't get there the, or get that written down. The numbers will be obvious when I tell you what it is. There is only one word in those verses that comes after the verse divider. And in English, it's three words. But in Hebrew, it's just one. It's, and he died. That's half of the verse in each of those verses. How's that for emphasis? That one word is so significant in each of those cases, it warrants a marking that makes that one word half the weight of the entire verse. Then, for further emphasis, the Masoretes put a section break after each of those verses. And so, don't worry if you didn't follow all of that. The point is that, that what we see from the ancient rabbinic tradition as they studied and preserved this text is that the major emphasis of the record of Adam's line through Seth is death. It's as if these words are highlighted for us, and you might want to actually highlight or underline them in your Bible, starting in verse 5. And he died and he died, 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 and he died. Eight times in 27 verses. If there were any doubt that God's words in chapter 2 had come true, that Adam would surely die as a result of his sin, chapter 5 is more than enough to lay such doubts to rest. Now, what else, we should ask, does this emphasis on death teach us? Well, think again for a moment of the contrast with the account of Cain's line. The account of Cain's line has their eyes, especially Lamech's in his speech, their eyes and, and Cain's eyes and his family's eyes were firmly fixed on the earth. They were after their best life now, and they attained it, as we saw, in some really impressive ways. They took this world by the horns, as it were, and wrested out of it every enjoyment and pleasure they could. Consequences be damned. By contrast, Seth's family, those who called on the name of Yahweh, their predominant experience here is one of death. And as we read about that, as we read of these men who lived so far into their hundreds, most of them to over 900 years of age, and as we read the abrupt and emphasized end of the account of each man, that he died... What effect does that have on where we want to put our eyes? Does that turn our gaze to the world and to what we can get from it? Quite the opposite. The emphasis in this text on earthly death after earthly death after earthly death is meant to direct our gaze in one direction, towards heaven. And that, you may have already gathered, is where the text is headed next, starting in verse 21. So far... We've seen, first, that the faithful can still be God's blessing to the world. And secondly, the faithful know the joys of life and especially the pains of death. The major emphasis of that second point should be directing us to a question. 
if life in this world is not going to produce what will ultimately satisfy my needs and wants, then what is the point of life on earth? And what should my life on earth look like? And yes, we've seen an element of the answer already that Adam and his descendants through Seth call on Yahweh and bear children in hope of the promise. But starting in verse 21, we, might fi- we find what you might think of as a more direct and comprehensive answer. And this is point number three in your outline. That the faithful can be friends with God and escape death. Verse 21 starts out following the same pattern of the previous generational introductions. Enoch lived 65 years and he begat Methuselah. But then, in verse 22, Moses inserts a significant break from his pattern for the first time since verse 3. And so that's, you know, in the sort of Hebrew way of reading the scriptures, that's a huge emphasis break. Rather than starting with the words, then Enoch lived, as the previous accounts do, instead it says, then Enoch walked with God. And verse 24 gives this extra emphasis by using the same wording again in place of Enoch lived, that Enoch walked with God. Friends, this is what it is for the faithful to live. If we are to live, if we are to know something other than the passing pleasures of this life, then we must learn here from Enoch. If we want to have any hope of avoiding the corruption and the misery and the potential futility of simply pursuing a life on earth, then we must learn to walk with God. Now, we should ask, what does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Well, to get a sense for this, first, we actually need to look back to the garden. Moses has used this form of this word only once previously in Genesis, back in chapter 3, verse 8. And turn with me there for a moment. It's good to see this one in the text. Chapter 3, verse 8. Verse 8 comes immediately in the wake of Adam and Eve having eaten the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. It says this, They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. What we see here is a glimpse of the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God before the fall. But we catch it in retrospect, don't we? It seems this was something that God would do before the fall, that he would come and he would be present with Adam and Eve, walking with them in the garden. But on this occasion, hearing him and knowing that he was present, Adam and Eve evidenced their newfound alienation from God. They had sinned, and they knew that their guilt meant that they needed to flee from him rather than to walk with him. And so a question that is being answered here, like the question of whether man was still God's image even after the fall, is whether man can still walk with God in the kind of intimate relationship that Adam and Eve had with him in Eden before the fall. This is the question, and it is being answered here wonderfully in the affirmative. Just as God was in the habit of walking with man in the garden, even so, Enoch's life is characterized with double emphasis as a walk with God. Now, we should consider how this description of Enoch, as I sort of prompted us to earlier, how this is instructive for us in terms of how we should live. One commentator puts it this way, and I think these words are simple, but at the same time challenging. That Enoch walked with God means that he was God's friend and liked his company 
because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. Now that gives us some hooks to hang application on, doesn't it? I would ask you for a moment to turn your thoughts to yourself. Do you like God's company? Do you find joy in reading his word? Does learning of his thoughts and his ways and his plans satisfy your desires? Do you find yourself wanting to go in the same direction as God? When you see things that the world values, especially those things that God has said no to, whether for any of his people or by his providence specifically to you, do you continue to have a desire for those things even though they don't lay in God's path for you? As you think about how you would answer those questions, I want to share with you something that I actually just read this morning in my quiet time. Jeremiah chapter 23. In Jeremiah 23, God is rebuking the false prophets in Israel for ministering assurance and peace to his people who are living in sin and idolatry. He says this, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of Yahweh. They keep saying to those who despise me, Yahweh has said you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come on you. Friends, as I asked those questions a moment ago, if you found yourself unable to answer in a way that assures you that you're a friend of God, that you walk with him, then it would be unfaithful of me, it says here in Jeremiah 23, as a minister of God's word to try to convince you that you actually are his friend, that you do walk with him, and that you will escape calamity. But if that's the position you find yourself in, not convinced from your answer to those questions that you are a friend of God, I want you to hear this. There is still hope for you. Even if you're one who almost never reads the Bible and you're not sure what it would say about your desires, I ask you this morning, will you turn from going your own way? Will you turn from making your own decisions about your path in life? Will you open this book and see what God has to say about it? And no matter how hard or how painful, will you resolve to walk with God in his path? Friend, that is the only way to true life. That is the only way to be sure that you are with God, that the one who is life is in fact your life, both in this world and forever. Now, speaking of life beyond this world, let's look at the final way in which Moses breaks his pattern of repetition in these verses about Enoch. You see, whereas every three verses so far we've read at the close of the revelation about each man in the list, and he died, what do we read here of Enoch in the last part of verse 24? And he was not, for God took him. Now, what does that mean? Well, there aren't a lot of options, really. The plain sense indicates that one moment Enoch was on earth walking with God, and the next moment he was no longer on the earth. So where was he? By implication, if God took him and he's no longer on earth, 
then he must no longer be on earth because he's now with God, wherever God is. This understanding can be confirmed by looking at a thematically similar account in the book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, Elijah uses nearly identical wording to describe to Elisha how God is about to take him to heaven. And when that happens in the next verse, we find a more detailed description than we have here of what happened to Enoch. It says, as they, Elijah and Elisha, were going along and talking, behold, there approached a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. And so, given the similar language and the common theme, we can assume that what happened to Elijah is more or less the same thing that happened to Enoch. So, what should we take from all of this, from the account of Enoch? Well, as the point says in the outline, for those who walk with God, for those who are friends of God, whatever happens on earth, whatever life's ups or downs, even including death, none of it must shake us because our lives and our well-being and our eternity are ultimately bound up with God. As it says in Hebrews 11, in the text Pastor Randy read for us at the start of the sermon this morning, the account of Enoch's life testifies to the fact that he was pleasing to God. Enoch drew near to God, the Hebrews writer infers, because he believed not only that God is, but that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And did Enoch receive a reward? Yes. Not only did he have the joy of fellowship with God and all the blessings of walking with God in this life, Enoch also had the reward of an early departure from this world. Did you catch that? I haven't mentioned it until now, but Enoch's life on earth is less than half the length of any of the other men listed in chapter 5. At 365 years, it could be said that Enoch's earthly life was cut short something we don't usually think of as a good thing. But, as with Elijah later, Enoch being caught up to be with the Lord is his reward. This is Enoch's hope, and it is our hope. We do not need to be enslaved to any fear. We need not be overcome by anything, by the world's godlessness or by its prosperity, by any injustice, by the death of loved ones, or even by the prospect of our own death. Our friendship with God gives us the hope that this world in the end is not our own and that we will ultimately escape even death. Whether, as the hymn says, we get to walk the veil with him or we meet him in the air. We will one day be taken to be with him. And so, Paul says, we will always be with the Lord. That is our joy. That, beloved, is our heavenly hope. Now, we've reached a place where it seems the Lord thinks we need to turn our gaze in a slightly different direction, really more than slight, altogether different direction. If verses 21 to 24 prompt us to turn our eyes with Enoch to heaven, and verse 25, by returning for three verses to his earlier pattern of repetition, Moses turns our eyes decidedly back to this world. But he does so for a purpose. With our hope in heaven with Enoch... But at the same time, having a realistic view of the situation in this present world, this is point number four on the outline, the faithful place all hope in the promised Messiah. 
follow along as I read, starting in verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Here, in these three verses, we return to all the elements of the earlier pattern, including its emphasis on death. Enoch may have found relief having received his reward early by means of his transfer to heaven, but with Methuselah, we find the longest lifespan of them all, at 969 years. Enoch is no longer earthbound, thus emphasizing our heavenly hope. But our first fathers and the world itself in its misery and death are still very much on the earth. And this is the emphasis once more as we approach another significant break in the pattern of the text, starting with verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. In light of the shift back from Enoch to the realities of life and death in this world, the text text knows we need another reminder of where our ultimate hope is. Friends, our ultimate hope is not in being caught up to be with the Lord, as wonderful as that will be. Our ultimate hope is in the fact that God has promised to undo the curse and all of its effects effects through the one promised seed of the woman, through the Messiah. Now, just a few details to point out to show you that this is a connection Moses intends for us to see. First, when it says that Lamech became the father of a son and called his name Noah, realize that this is a return to the same words used back in verse 3 where Adam became the father of a son and called his name Seth. You may recall that Eve had applied the seed promise to Seth back in chapter 4 when she gave birth to a son and named him his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring, or seed, in place of Abel. Well, here, in chapter 5, we have Seth's birth, with its messianic hope, connected linguistically with Noah's birth, and what is Lamech's obvious hope for his son. Lamech calls his son's name Noah, which means rest. And here we find another connection with Eden. You may recall that after God made Adam, in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says he rested him in the garden. And here, Lamech, making direct reference to the curse, expresses his prophetic hope that the birth of his son Noah would carry with it the hope of the world to return to the rest of Eden to relief from hard labor and no doubt from the devastating effects of sin that by this time were raging throughout the earth, as we're going to see in chapter 6. With verse 30, we find the text returning once more ever so briefly to its previous pattern of repetition. Lamech lives and has other children and dies, and then Noah lives and has children. Looking ahead to chapter 6, verse 9, we find a clear connection between Enoch and Noah. It says there that Noah walked with God. Noah, like Enoch, was God's friend. However, and I think you'll know the answer to this, did God catch Noah up to heaven like he did Enoch? No. Like the Messiah whose promise he embodied, Noah was a man consigned to a painful life on earth. He was a man who would know firsthand the judgment of God. 
And Noah, like his descendant Jesus, was a man who walked by faith, preaching righteousness in the midst of a sinful generation, and who eventually, together with his sons, carried the hope of humanity in his own body under the outpouring of God's wrathful judgment. Now, if we go much further with that, we'll be in Genesis 6, which we really need to save for our next sermon. And the truth is, you probably have enough to process already from chapter 5. Hopefully, as we've seen these four transcendent realities unfold within the text, hopefully the effect has been to turn your gaze towards the Messiah. As I mentioned earlier, I want to return now to a few additional thoughts about point one in particular, that the faithful can still be God's blessing to the world. Brothers and sisters, why were we created? We exist, don't we, to show the world what God is like. But just think, as we try to make that our aim, to show the world what God is like, how many things stand in our way? Starting with the urge that we all inherited from our first parents, the urge to defy God, the strength of the desires that we feel naturally to take for ourselves much of what God has forbidden, and the desire to not do much of what he says is right and good. And then, even if we're convinced that we should do things God's way instead of ours, there's a whole world of earthly delights that is constantly calling our names. There's a whole world that is experiencing their best lives now, and much of what they treasure is easily within our reach. And the world is calling us to join them in treasuring those same things. Then there are the disappointments and the devastations. There are the broken promises and unfulfilled hopes. There are the losses of health and losses of friends and family. There are unfriendly reminders of death in a world where so often we've successfully managed to keep death at the periphery of our experience. Beloved, any one of these things and all of them together can so easily be occasions for us to respond in ways that communicate the opposite of God's goodness to the world around us. And so what hope is there? Well, in short, the answer, as it so often is, is Jesus. In Jesus, the Messiah hoped for in Genesis 5 has come. And by his death and resurrection, he has provided the only basis on which anyone has ever turned back from sin and to renewal in God's image. The Apostle Paul ties all of this together in a very helpful way in the first 17 verses of Colossians chapter 3. And remember that, it'll be an answer for small group. Colossians 3, first 17 verses. You might turn there because most of the rest of what I'll have to say comes more or less from those verses. Colossians chapter 3, first 17 verses. What is implicit in what we've seen in Genesis 5 and drawn out of it becomes explicit as Paul describes in, Gen in Colossians 3 how those who have any hope of mediating goodness to the world, things like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, those who have any hope of bearing with one another and forgiving one another. The only possible way to have such a hope is to be united by faith with the Messiah. Paul says in verse 1, If you have been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And what is the assumption here if you have been raised up with him? Verse 3, that you have died with him, and your life is hidden with Christ in 
God. What I want you to see, friends, as we close, is that any hope that we have to bless the world as God's image is connected with our willingness to forsake any claim to that world and to connect ourselves instead with the Messiah. Rather than identifying with those whose pursuit is the world and all they can possibly get from it, we identify instead with those who are constantly dying to worldly enticements. We see in verse 5 of Colossians 3, we die to immorality, we die to impurity, we die to evil desire, we die to godless ambition, we die to greed which amounts to idolatry. We die. And we live. Verse 10, reborn and renewed in a way fitting for a walk with God. We live to the promised Messiah and the hope of his promises which have come true and are coming true and will continue to come true, all of them, very soon, even in the blink of an eye. Please pray with me. Father, you are good, and all of your works are kind. You have been so kind to us this morning, Father, to give us your word. And Father, to give us these four realities from your word that teach us and lead us to greater conformity to your Son. We pray, Father, that you would send your Spirit as you've promised to do as we behold these things in your word, and that you would do the work that only you can do of using them to conform us and to transform us from one degree of glory to the next, to look more like your Son and to be a blessing to this world. We ask in his name. Amen.